Okay, here we are. <clears throat> I hope we're back on the air. I'm not sure exactly what happened there. But uh, <clears throat> sometimes, you know, when you live by technology, you also die by technology. Anyway, I, I am back. I was away for a week. And um, I was in Israel for my uh, grandson's bar mitzvah and uh, had a very, very good time and also had an amazing experience. I had a private tour with uh, Uri Geller in his museum. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Uri Geller, uh, he uh, came to fame in the 1970s with uh, a simple illusion, bending a spoon. And he has parlayed this into a 50-year career, uh, meeting numerous illuminaries around the world, collecting all kinds of fascinating objects, which are shown in his museum. And uh, I was able to arrange a private tour for me and my family, and he did this personally. And, uh, I mean, obviously, we did not get into the discussion of bending spoons by the power of the mind, uh, because I really wasn't uh, wasn't keen to challenge him on that. Uh, although, of course, um, uh, I did make it clear that, you know, I was uh, familiar with magic and I was a skeptic, and I think he understood, and we just didn't discuss that. But uh, he has some amazing uh, objects. I mean, the, ranging from Michael Jackson's signed jacket to uh, part of an astronaut suit that was born, worn by Edgar Mitchell when he went to the moon. Uh, he's got an original Andy Warhol uh, painting. Uh, he's got a huge car, all bedecked with bent spoons, as you might expect. And... Uh, <clears throat> I have been very critical of Yuri in the past. I have written a lot about him because, uh, of course, uh, I know that he doesn't bend spoons by the power of the mind. There are various ways that this can be done. And he actually is uh, a performer of magic, except that he doesn't really admit that. But anyway, I stayed away from that, that kind of discussion because... He was uh, very friendly. He was very personable. He was charming as he showed us around the uh, the museum. And um, it really is a remarkable place. It's in Jaffa, which is just uh, next to, to Tel Aviv. And he had purchased the whole building and uh, rebuilt it inside. And while they were rebuilding it, they also unearthed an ancient soap factory, which is uh, is just amazing. And uh, he showed a video of that as, you know, they dug it all out. And uh, um, uh, it's uh, an archaeological find. I mean, soap making is one of the oldest processes known to mankind. And uh, when they dug up the floor, they came upon the, the remnants of an ancient uh, soap making uh, facility. So that, it was really quite a, a remarkable uh, visit with uh, uh, with Yuri, and uh, I was kind of surprised by just how personable he was, and uh, he was, I, I must say, he was just a great, great storyteller, and uh, he um, regaled us with a number of of, uh, uh, of anecdotes, uh, most of which I think were true, although I think some 
times somewhat, uh, you know, uh, embellished. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, it, it was uh, absolutely uh, fascinating because, uh, you know, no matter what you think of the guy, he has been around for 50 years, uh, entertaining people around the world. And I mean, some of some of it is, of course, quite outrageous from a skeptic's point of view. For example, he recently said that uh, he warned uh, Putin that he was going to send missiles to Ukraine if they were nuclear armed, then Uri would uh, mentally turn them around so they would crash back on, on, uh, on Russia. Uh, this kind of thing, of course, is, is pure uh, entertainment, but he, he is a master at getting publicity. And um, so anyway, if, if any of you do ever get to go to, to, uh, to Jaffa, uh, you can phone up. The museum is not open generally except to groups, but you can phone up and arrange for a visit, which I would urge you to do. You're listening to the Dr. Joshua. We'll check traffic and be right back. Okay, I've got a couple of questions for you. What sort of bath was Benjamin Franklin famous for? And another one, what medicine did Oliver Cromwell refuse to take? If you know the answer to those, 514-790-0800, or of course you can text to 514-800. Uh, given that uh, I just spent a week in Israel, I'll tell you a little story here that has some uh, uh, relation to it. In 1618, a farmer in England noticed that he could lead his cows to water, but he could not make them drink. He tasted the well water himself and realized right away that there was some wisdom to the cow's behavior. The water tasted terribly bitter. Something that tasted so awful must be good for something, he thought. It sure was. The water made for a very nice, soothing, hot foot bath and even had a healing effect on scratches and skin rashes. The most dramatic effect, however, came when the farmer drank a whole glass of the water. Let's just say that the result was uh, a rather hasty trip to the outhouse. What was so special about this water? It didn't take the farmer long to figure it out. When he allowed the water to evaporate, he was left with copious amounts of white powdery residue. Epsom salt, he called it, and the name stuck. That, well, Epsom eventually became a huge commercial success. Epsom salt is still used today for its ability to soothe inflammation by withdrawing water from muscles and tissues, and on occasion still used as a laxative. Now, of course, we know what the active ingredient is, magnesium sulfate. Our English farmer wasn't the first to notice the bitter taste of this substance. That distinct honor may well go to Moses. The Bible recounts how after leaving Egypt, the Israelites wandered around the desert with very little food, very little water. Then one day, much to their delight, they came upon the pond of Marah. Their happiness, however, was short-lived because the water turned out to be so bitter that they could not drink it. Moses then turned to his research director and got good advice. The Lord showed him a tree, and when he cast it into the water, the waters were made sweet. What happened here? The main components of wood are cellulose and lignin. 
these compounds, when subjected to sun exposure, develop so-called ion exchange properties, meaning that they can absorb both magnesium and sulfate ions. In a sense, Moses ended up purifying the water and made it sweet to drink. There, I told you that there would be an Israel link to that uh, story. All right. Uh, I did get an answer to supposed uh, uh, question about uh, the kind of bath that Benjamin Franklin uh, wanted to take. No, it wasn't a bird bath. And no, it wasn't in the Dead Sea. Oh, that would have made for an interesting story if Benjamin Franklin had uh, been into taking a bath in the Dead Sea, but he certainly never visited that, that area. I did, of course, just last week, and uh, I did float in the Dead Sea. And, of course, that's all you can do there, float, and uh, you have to do it actually quite carefully because uh, you have to be very careful not to get any of that immensely salty water into your eyes because it will burn terribly. Uh, if you have any cuts, open cuts, the salt water gets in there and also is extremely irritating, and it is not particularly pleasant on your body orifices either, but it is certainly a very, very interesting sensation. And the, the water is so dense because of the high salt content that uh, when you walk in and you're, you know, you're up to, oh, maybe just above your knee, your leg just automatically starts to float up. You just can't even walk in any further. So what you have to do at that point is kind of squat down and then uh, lie down backwards in the water very carefully without any splashing. And then you can just float there. It's very pleasant. The water is, uh, is very warm. And when you look around, the scenery is, is just astounding. Uh, you see on, on one side the Jordanian mountains, and on the other side you see uh, the nearby um, cliffs. Uh, this is uh, where I was, was very close to Qumran, which is where the um, Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So wherever you are, you are you know, near a historical uh, uh, area. The unfortunate thing about the Dead Sea is that it is going to disappear. Uh, the evaporation rate is, is very high. And of course, it leaves behind um, all of the salts, the sodium chloride, the, the uh, sodium bromide, uh, the potassium chloride. That's a huge industry, actually extracting all of the minerals from, from the water. But because uh, there is only the Jordan, Jordan River feeding it and not much water comes from there, the Dead Sea is not being replenished as it, and it is drying up. There were at one time plans to connect the Dead Sea with the canal uh, to, to, uh, to the Red Sea, but um, I don't think that that is in the works. But, I mean, eventually, uh, if they're going to save the Dead Sea, something like that will um, have to be done. <clears throat> and it is really shrinking at, um, at a terrible rate. And you can see it. You can see where the water used to be and where it now is. It used to come right up to the, the highway, and now you have to wait, walk way, way uh, down in order to get to, to the water. So you got to enjoy this and get that uh, amazing feeling now while it's still, uh, while the Dead Sea is, uh, is still there. 
anyway, it's it it, um, it really is a very very interesting uh, experience. Uh, you know who the Daniel David Palmer was? Well, if you don't, let me tell you. He was a former fish merchant who became a magnetic healer. He claimed to have magnetic energy coming out of his hands, and he claimed to be able to transfer this healing energy to a patient just by touching. Now, we're talking here about the late 1800s. And one day in 1895, Palmer encountered Harvey Lillard, a deaf janitor. When he examined the man's back, he saw vertebra out of position, which he then proceeded to adjust with his magnetic hands. And as the story goes, Lillard regained his full hearing, so Palmer said. Of course, the veracity of this event is questionable. Well, one thing is clear. On that epic day, chiropractic was born, coming from the word chiro, Greek meaning hand. So it was a hand practice, chiropractic. Palmer went on to suggest that virtually every illness was due to a misaligned spine and could be treated by adjustments. Well, while chiropractic may have some value in musculoskeletal problems, the idea that all disease stems from the spine is pretty fishy. Now, there are some legitimate chiropractors these days who, of course, um, don't, don't abide by Palmer's original theory and uh, don't think that every disease comes from the spine and everything could be done by adjustment. But there are others uh, who uh, still are uh, practicing in the traditional way and make absolutely outlandish claims about what they can do and often sell supplements of all kinds. Uh, they have various kinds of machinery that is supposed to perform miraculous uh, functions. So the scope of chiropractic today is quite wide, ranging from uh, chiropractors who practice in, in uh, somewhat of an honorable fashion, limiting themselves to musculoskeletal problems, which sometimes do respond to uh, manipulation. And, but physiatrists can also do that. Some massage therapists can, can do that. Physiotherapists can do that. Osteopaths do that. On the other hand, there are also chiropractors who are into all kinds of, uh, of quackery uh, with machines that actually do nothing at all except extract money from the wallets of, of, of patients. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check news and see what's happening out there in the world. And after that, we'll be right back. This is the first Monday in November. It is time for my uh, monthly presentation at the Eleanor Public Library in Port St. Luke, just across from uh, Cavendish Mall. And uh, 2 o'clock tomorrow, we're back doing things live. And everyone, of course, is invited. It's free. And uh, we'll have a very interesting discussion about the science of everyday life. So that's at 2 o'clock tomorrow, Eleanor Public Library, uh, Eleanor London Public Library on Cavendish Boulevard, just across from the Cavendish Mall in, uh, in Cote St. Luke. 
Loudspeakers atop patrol cars in Chicago were blaring out a frightening warning. Do not consume any extra-strength Tylenol you may have purchased. This was followed by a media blitz about the potential lethal effects of taking the capsules. The year was 1982, and seven people had just died of cyanide poisoning within a couple of days of each other. Well, it didn't take authorities long to find the common link. All the victims had taken capsules of extra-strength Tylenol. A massive recall of 31 million bottles by the manufacturer, Johnson Johnson, followed. But it quickly became clear that the company was blameless. The tainted capsules were limited to a few bottles that had been purchased in the Chicago area. Someone had opened some capsules, inserted potassium cyanide, and then had placed the bottles with the poison contents back on the shelves to be purchased by unfortunate customers. Despite a massive police investigation, the murderer was never found, and no motive was ever identified. Early suspicion fell on James Lewis, who had sent a letter to Johnson Johnson claiming responsibility and had demanded a million dollars to stop the poisonings. But it was determined that he was just trying to capitalize on the sordid affair. He had nothing to do with the cyanide-laden capsules, but ended up being sentenced to 10 years in prison for extortion. Well, this tragic episode had nothing to do with Tylenol's active ingredient. That ingredient does merit some scrutiny, especially given that it is the most widely used drug in the world. Tylenol derives its name from acetylaminophenol. It's also known as acetaminophen in North America and paracetamol elsewhere. And it is very, very widely used because it is a very effective painkiller and a fever reducer. But there is a problem with acetaminophen, and that is that when it is metabolized in the body, one of its metabolites, called N-acetylparabenzoquinone-imine, is toxic to the liver. And uh, it doesn't take too big an overdose to have lethal consequences. The maximum amount of acetaminophen that uh, an adult should take is about six 500 milligram pills a day. But taking just 20 pills of acetaminophen during a short time can be lethal. Now, normally, the toxic metabolite is mopped up by glutathione, one of the body's prime detoxicating agents. But there's not enough of it in the body to handle an overdose. Indeed, acetaminophen overdose is the predominant cause of acute liver failure in industrialized countries and is the prime reason for liver transplants. Well, luckily, the vast majority of the 60,000 or so emergency room visits a year in North America due to acetaminophen toxicity do not have such dire consequences, thanks to the fact that emergency rooms stock an antidote, N-acetylcysteine, and this can help replenish glutathione and therefore remove the toxic metabolite from the body. Today, the global annual acetaminophen market is an astounding $9.5 billion. And it is fueled by heavy promotion that emphasizes the lack of gastrointestinal side effects that are normally associated with aspirin and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the NSAIDs. While the concern about liver toxicity sure has to be recognized, 
there is at least no worry anymore about cyanide-tainted Tylenol. A consequence of the Chicago tragedy was the development of tamper-proof packaging that features a plastic seal, an aluminum foil cover, and a pop-up cap. But now we face the challenge of opening the bottle, a struggle that can exacerbate the headache that we are looking to treat. All right, I am still looking for the answer to my questions. What sort of bath was Benjamin Franklin famous for? What did he like to take? No, it wasn't in the Dead Sea, and it wasn't a bird bath. It was something else. And the other question that I had was about the medicine that Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector in England, what medicine did he refuse to take? If you'll answer, 514-790-0800, or, of course, you can text us at 514-800. Flu season, well, it's coming. In fact, it is upon us. So let's take a moment to reflect on the largest pandemic in history. No, it isn't COVID-19, nor the bubonic plague, not typhoid fever, smallpox, or AIDS. It was the 1914 to 1918 flu. It was the pandemic that began, well, actually it began somewhat later than 1914. I mean, it's usually talked about as during the World War, which is 1914 to 1918, but the flu actually began around 1917. Began in U.S. military bases, and within just six weeks, 3% of the recruits at Camp Sherman had died. Obviously, they were not old people with impaired immune systems. The flu affected everyone. Troops carried it to Europe, and the flu even spread to China. Today, of course, we're concerned about the flu moving in the other direction. Within one year, an approximate 25 million people died, although some say that it was a lot more than that. But it was hard to find statistics back then. A staggering number when compared with the 9 million who perished in battle during World War I. Ships that crossed the Atlantic routinely arrived with far fewer passengers than they had departed with. But the pandemic did have an economic effect. Sales of flu remedies, none of which were effective against the virus, skyrocketed. The product that may have benefited the most from the disease was Vicks Vaporub introduced in 1905 by Lunsford Richardson, a druggist in Selma, North Carolina. Its main ingredient was menthol, extracted from oil of peppermint. Richardson was not the first person to realize menthol's potential in pharmaceutical products. That honor goes to Jules Benguet, B-E-N-G-U-E, a French pharmacist who had developed Benguet, that's B-E-N hyphen G-A-Y, as a treatment for sore muscles. This pharmacist had noted that menthol produced heat when rubbed on the skin and combined it with methyl salicylate, a painkiller. He sold the concoction as a treatment for arthritis, gout, and neuralgia. Some of the patients who used Bengay reported that sniffing the product cleared their sinuses if they had a cold. Richardson, as a druggist, sold Bengay and heard such testimonials from his patients. So, he blended menthol into petroleum jelly and produced Richardson's croup and pneumonia cure salve. 
rubbed on the chest, it did produce the sensation of heat. And as the menthol evaporated, it seemed to clear the nasal passages. Because the name was too long, Richardson sought a shorter, catchier one. He happened to have a physician brother-in-law called Joshua Vick, who had provided the laboratory where the salve was first created. So Richardson decided to name it Vick's Vaporub. The name stuck. Menthol products were even used in an attempt to help asthma sufferers. Inhalation was supposed to help open up the bronchial passages. Of course, it really didn't do anything for the flu. But nevertheless, it was widely sold. And it is still with us today. Although, of course, nobody anymore recommends it with the flu. But uh, Vicks Vaporub still may have sort of a pleasant sensation for rubbing on your chest. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Let's check traffic, see what's going on out there. Okay, I think we have Elizabeth on the line. Yes, uh, good afternoon, Dr. Joe. I was thinking whether it's a sitz bath for hemorrhoids, for pisiotomy, and you put some liquid into it, and you sit in this water mixture. That... Good, good guess, but it's the wrong one. Oh, it isn't? Okay. <laughs> All right. But I did, I did get the correct one texted in from Teresa, who says oh. that Ben Franklin indulged in air baths, which is true. Oh. In fact, it was cold air baths. He thought it was less of a shock to the system than cold water. Interesting. He said, I rise almost every morning and sit in my chamber without any clothes, whatever. <laughs> Half an hour or an hour, according to the season, whether reading or writing. This yeah. practice is not the least painful, but on the contrary, agreeable. Okay. So there it is. Very Benjamin good. Franklin, we find out, was a nudist. Okay. Good. All right. And I did get an answer also. Uh, to my other question about uh, Oliver Cromwell and what medicine he refused to take. It was Jesuit bark. Now, Jesuit bark was imported from uh, Peru by the Jesuits, who, of course, had uh, gone to South America to try to convert the natives to Catholicism. But when they were there, they learned that... uh, making a brew of the bark of that tree was effective for the treatment of fever, such as malaria. And they brought it back to Europe. But uh, Oliver Cromwell got sick with malaria, but he refused to take Jesuit bark because he thought it was some sort of a Catholic plot to reconvert Protestants to Catholicism. Well, he died of, uh, of malaria, Uh, And he had said that he would uh, rather go to a Protestant heaven than live in a Catholic hell on earth. And uh, we don't know which way he went, but we know where his body went. It went to Westminster Abbey, which is where the Lord Protector of Commonwealth of England, Scotland and Ireland uh, was buried. He, of course, had come to power after defeating King Charles I in the Civil War. And uh, he was one of the main signatories on Charles I's uh, death warrant. After Charles I was executed, Cromwell led the Commonwealth of, of England. He died in 1658. He was only 59 years old. 
but malaria will get you, whatever your age is. And uh, he had appointed his son, Richard, as his successor, but uh, Richard was not very successful at, uh, as a leader, as his father, didn't have a good relationship with the army. And uh, <clears throat> very soon after taking power, he renounced it. And uh, this resulted in, in uh, the so-called restoration uh, with uh, King Charles II coming to the throne of, uh, of England. Charles then decreed that Cromwell be disinterred from Westminster Abbey and that he be executed despite already being dead. The bodies of Cromwell, his, uh, his generals and uh, some other of his confreres were removed from their graves. They were hanged in chains and then beheaded and their bodies were thrown into common graves and then placed their heads were placed on spikes above Westminster Hall. And during a storm, 1685, Cromwell's head reportedly fell from the spike and was thrown to the ground. And uh, it has since been reported to have passed through numerous hands. It has been shown in various private and museum collections. Uh, but, uh, of course, nobody really knows whether it is the legitimate head of uh, Oliver Cromwell. It's uh, quite a story. And... Uh, while he was still Lord Protector, uh, Cromwell imposed a number of rules on England. Uh, theater was banned, as were other forms of entertainment. Uh, even celebrating Christmas was not allowed. Uh, Puritans wanted people to spend Christmas contemplating Jesus' life rather than celebrating. Monthly fast days were introduced to encourage people to focus on God. Most sports were banned. If you were caught playing sport on a Sunday, you could be whipped. Swearing was also banned. That was punishable by a fine or a stint in prison. Sundays, you were, of course, not allowed to work. That was treated as a special day. And uh, even unnecessary walking was prohibited. Women caught working were put in the stocks. Makeup was banned. And uh, uh, soldiers patrolled the streets, often scrubbing women's faces who were found to have used makeup. That was the era of Puritanism in, uh, in England. All right, plant-based diets. They're all the rage these days, and they really do have benefits. You know, if you're making your own vegetable soup, your ratatouille or grilling veggies, you're on the right track. You'll be consuming less fat, less salt, less cholesterol than a meat-based diet. But when it comes to foods fabricated from plant ingredients that aim to replicate the taste and texture of animal products, uh, the story is different. Uh, The Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger, which, you know, I've talked about before, but they merit discussing again uh, because there's so much hype about them. They don't have any real nutritional advantage over a a beef burger. And they have the same amount of saturated fat, roughly four times as much sodium. They have no cholesterol, which is found on animal products, but the 100 milligrams of cholesterol in the meat burger will have very little impact on your blood cholesterol. Anyway, so yes, uh, plant diets are, are 
I think preferable, uh, although I, you know, I, I don't think they have to be exclusively plant-based diet, but you want to be careful about these plant-based products that, that aim to, to, you know, duplicate uh, meat uh, products. All right. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about French army recruits and the metal tungsten. There used to be a strange initiation rite for conscripts into the artillery regiment in France. Recruits had to drink a glass of white wine, which had flowed through the barrel of a 155-millimeter gun after several shots had been fired. And then one day, a 19-year-old soldier developed seizures and was taken to hospital unconscious and unresponsive to stimuli. He was found to have extremely high levels of tungsten in his blood, and the source was traced to the wine. It seems the composition of gun barrels had recently changed with the inclusion of tungsten for hardness. Tungsten steel is especially hard. Other recruits were spared because they had vomited immediately after drinking the wine. The French army has now banned this practice. Uh, let me again remind you, that it is a good idea to check out our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS. We have lots of interesting stuff there. And furthermore, you can also sign up for a free weekly newsletter, which will entertain and inform you. And we also have lots of videos on there. If you want to see some of my uh, pictures from the Dead Sea and my trip, you can just go to my Facebook page. And I put uh, a number of those pictures there uh, for your uh, amusement. And again, let me remind you that tomorrow at 2 o'clock, I'll be in the Eleanor London Public uh, Library in Cote St. Luke. That's just across from the Cavendish Mall. And this is something that uh, I do generally the first Monday of every month. And I've been doing it now for over 30 years. And we just uh, discuss various interesting aspects of science. And uh, you have a chance also to ask questions. Well, that's it for today. We're uh, out of time. Sorry for that little technical hitch at the beginning. Uh, I'm still not sure exactly what happened there. But uh, luckily, we did get it fixed. You've been listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>